by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. sudden one of them's ah, ah, and he's pointing and the rest of them said what 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 and they're looking it's a ghost and they saw well what would you think a man walking on the wind and the waves the funny thing is is he wasn't even walking straight toward the boat he was just walking back <laughs> I'm serious. It says he would have walked on by if they wouldn't have noticed. It says that in Mark chapter 6 that he would have walked on by. I guess he figures, you guys, if you don't want me, go ahead and figure it out. I'm going to let you see me, but if you don't call me, I'm not coming to help. I'll go ahead and get there, and I'll meet y'all there. But they saw him, and then they began to have a meltdown. And so Jesus says, Hey, don't be afraid. It's just me. (laughs) Don't be afraid. It is I. So why did Jesus come to the earth? Man, we'd be here for months and months describing all those, but I've got a few ideas. And I'm going to try to hit the ones that I saw just right off the bat. The first thing I see is that Jesus came to reveal to us God's love. Because one of the worst things is to be in a sinking boat and don't think God loves you. And God doesn't want you to feel like that. He doesn't want you to think that you're going to go down unloved. In John 14, 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So when you look in the face of Jesus, what do you see? You see God. And who is God? God is love. And so Jesus came to reveal the Father in all of his love. And God himself, the God the Father, had commissioned Jesus to do this. You know that. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness... He was the one that said, let there be light in the beginning. Now he looks down in this earth that he gave light, is now bathed in darkness, and he's commanding another light to shine in the darkness. Who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, God's glory is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. If you've seen Jesus, if you understand who Jesus is, you understand who God is. 
See, in the Old Testament, they didn't get a chance to see the face of Jesus. They just knew about God. They heard from the prophets, mostly. But now, light has come into the world. Isn't that awesome? And God's love is being revealed in the face of Jesus. When you see Jesus and you see the way he acts, you can pull out 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, and you can see love is patient, love is kind, love is all these things, you know. And you see how Jesus behaves. You see a picture of Jesus written down in, in words. When I look at the Psalms sometimes, the ones that David wrote especially, and some, there's other psalmists that wrote some of the 150 psalms, and uh, I often see how they say, Lord, strike my enemies, defeat my enemies, crush them under your mighty hand or whatever. They kill my enemies, make them like dust under your feet, let them fall in their own traps, and he's praying for his enemies to be destroyed. And, you know, my old self would be like, yeah. But now that I've seen the way God really thinks about people and how we're told through Jesus to love our enemies, it would be hard for me to pray, God, kill all my enemies. Now, I, I, even my enemies, I want to pray for them. Brother Joshua is, has such a heart for, for people on, on Tuesday night prayer. He's always praying for the lost and those who even fight against us, you know, and fight against Christianity. And he's, he's got a heart. And that's the way we should all be. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And so in light of that, I just think, well, David, maybe David was talking about our real enemy, the devil. Because our enemies are not flesh and blood, you understand. The Bible tells us we don't war against flesh and blood, but against powers and, and rulers of the darkness and such. There is a spiritual enemy, the devil and his demons. Now, I'm okay with them getting crushed and destroyed. Oh, get them. Get them, God. So I will pray along those lines. But the humans are not our enemies. And so now God has given, shown me in the face of Jesus Christ to love even for my enemies. I'm not saying it's easy. Jesus shows us, like we have on our banner there, everyone matters. Even our enemies. The poor matter. The prisoners matter. The downtrodden, the disabled, those who the world may feel are misfits that don't fit in. We don't want them. They're, you know, they're willing to kill the babies and kill the old people in the world. Get rid of them. What use are they? If they don't serve a purpose to me, then they have no purpose. But that is not the way God sees anyone. God believes that everyone holds intrinsic value. and He was willing to die for the one, no matter who that one would be. All the misfits have a place in God's love. And if you think about it, which one of us isn't a misfit? Isn't it ridiculous to, to have a place where they're, they're telling everybody, well, you're not good enough to be here? And call themselves a church. It's kind of ridiculous. It's, it sounds like a bunch of people who forgot where they came from. I hope that's never said of us. But Jesus, he pulled out the scroll 
of Isaiah in the temple one day and stood up to read was as his custom. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he said, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released and that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he rolled that scroll back up and he set it down and he went and sat down. And he says, I tell you today that this scripture is fulfilled in your eyes and your hearing. You're looking at him. I am the one that Isaiah spoke about. It's what I came to do. Restore sight to the blind. Set the captives free. And he meant it with all his heart. Bring good news to the poor. See, it's the time of the Lord's favor. It's three years where the Lord's favor was made evident in the face of Jesus Christ who was revealing God's plan for the world and his love for humanity. And that everybody can be a part of God's plan. Even Jesus' name means Jehovah saves. And that's what he came to do. It was even prophesied of his birth in Matthew 121. And she shall have a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what he came to do. You see, sin is the issue. It's what made Jesus have to come down here. It's what got man kicked out of the garden and out of relationship with God in the first place. Sin is the problem. But Jesus came to deal with sin in a brand new way. Not the old way where we just cover the sins temporarily with the blood of bulls and goats and rams and such. And animal sacrifices where just could only cover the sins and get them out of God's sight for a moment. But Jesus came with his own blood. The blood of a sinless, spotless lamb that was able once and for all to not just cover our sins, but to erase our sins and cast them as far as the east is to the west and remember them no more. His blood shed once and for all, not every year like the priest that used to have to, to shed, bring the blood into the, the holy of holies and, and pour it on the altar of bulls and goats, he had, to, he had to do that for his own sins, but Jesus had none of his own sins to do that. And being part God, or fully God and fully man, he was able to satisfy your sin debt where nobody else could, nobody else qualified. What three years it was Jesus came to deal with sin in a new way. In Matthew 5, 17, it says, Don't misunderstand why I came, Jesus says. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. We're not just saying what they said didn't matter. We're not just making up new stuff. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Their purpose was to make you see that you needed a Savior, and I came to be your Savior. I am the solution to what they wrote about. The law was to make you understand what's right and wrong and to make you understand that you need some help to be right with God. He didn't come to tiptoe through the tulips. Even though he was God, he didn't come down here in silk drawers. <laughs> he came to get messy in a messy earth that 
can be awful nasty at times. In Hebrews 2.17, he says, Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, fully human, brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest of God. Merciful because he's, he can endure what we endure and know what we're going through. And then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away, take away the sins of the people. Some of you are holding on to sins from 30 years ago. And you've asked a thousand times to be forgiven. Why are you holding on to them? They've been taken away. You're the only ones. Well, maybe whoever you sinned against, if you didn't make restitution or whatever, but... But God's not holding them against you. And that's good news. In John 4, 34, Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. I come to do what the Father told me to do. But then he talk, starts talking a little bit about our responsibility. In, Matthew, in Mark 2, 17, he says, I come to call not those who think they're righteous. Can you imagine there be people on the earth that think they're right? Now, you know you. I know me. I can't. Well, back before I was saved, I was so hard-headed. Maybe. Maybe I thought for a minute I'm a pretty good person. And if you were to grade on a big curve in some kind of weird scenario, I could see myself right with God. But, you know, I'd mess that up ten minutes later. Right? But then, you know, he'd forget that. He said, I didn't call those people, those people who won't admit that they need a Savior, but those who know they are sinners, those who know. In 1 John 3, 8, he says, when people keep on sinning, I like how he says it, keep on sinning. That doesn't mean it's a casual sin that you accidentally did and you asked for forgiveness and you're trying not to do it again. If you're asking for forgiveness and getting back in the game and still trying to fight against your sin, that's not who he's talking about. He's those, talking about those who keep on sinning. It shows that they belong to the devil. Sunday we talked about this one thing, right? How God just boiled it down to one thing is important. Knowing Jesus. And now we're just talking about black and white. You got to go way out of your way. You got to be a, a real unreasonable overthinker to mess up the Christian message. He says if you keep on sinning, like it doesn't matter, and you don't care if it's hurting Jesus, you don't care if it's hurting the Father, you don't care if it's embarrassing the Holy Spirit, and you don't care what it does to other people in your life, let's just be honest. You're of your father, the devil. If you just keep on doing that. It says the devil, he's the one been sinning from the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. There is an enemy. Now once again, don't nobody in here that's trying to live their life for Jesus, feels repentance, tries to ask for forgiveness, that you may be struggling in a sin and you make mistakes in that same area of sin. I'm not saying you're of the devil. You're trying. You're overcoming 
you're making progress, right? So don't nobody get the wrong idea. But if you can do it with no conscience sake, and, and there's no repentance, no remorse, no guilt in your heart, and you're just heading down that path, and I don't care if you said the sinner's prayer 57 times. It's black and white. It shows you belong to the devil. And so there's only two places you can belong to, right? You can be God's or you can be the devil's. Jesus came to make forgiveness possible and show how it works. In Luke 9, 56, it says, The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He doesn't want you to die in your sin. He doesn't want you to be of the devil. He doesn't want you to be a sinner. It's not his will that any should perish. He's trying to show you the devil's bad. I'm good. Here's life. Here's death. I said before you, blessing and cursing, you choose. And by the way, choose life. Choose life. I don't know what more he could do other than take away your free will, which he refuses to do. Yep, they was in the boat, and Jesus would have walked right on by if they didn't invite him in. He won't do your part. He makes all things possible for you. But he won't do your part for you. You must believe. You must do the repentance. And believe. He invites you to live out an extraordinary life of faith that we talked about. He says, come on. Come on, Peter. Get out the boat. You can do it. You can do it. Get out the boat. Come to me, Peter. Live a supernatural life. Don't be like mere mortals when I put my spirit in you. I started writing, you know, my next thought here that I was going to say, and it started kind of rhyming and me being an ex-songwriter. I don't know why I do this. It embarrass myself. Let me see if I can get it in my head. Somebody give me a beat. <coughs> no, just kidding. <coughs> when I was sinking in the raging sea, worn out, worn down, about to drown, hopeless as can be, he came walking through my haze. Stepping over the crashing waves. Bid me come, Lord Jesus. Bid me come to thee. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So I wrote one verse, but let's see how the rest goes. Jesus, he not only points us to the word of God, he is the word of God. And to see him in action. And, oh, we can see him in action. It was recorded for us. He was simply, he came to be our example because he was fully human and he was operating by the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. If, the Holy, if he wouldn't have been filled with the Holy Spirit, it says that he was given the Spirit without measure. Why? Because he asked for the Spirit without measure and he lived a holy life and he opened himself up to have the Spirit without measure, something I believe we could do. Why are we not seeing the miracles that he did in our lives? Is anybody getting out of the boat? I don't want to see anybody getting out of the boat. <laughs> Maybe when we start getting out of the boat, 
and having faith the size of a mustard seed and actually saying, hey, Jesus says I can, I'm going to believe it. He was our example. He went around healing people, delivering people, setting the captives free, preaching, serving. And he did did so in, in humility, which is odd since he's the king of kings and the great I am. It's odd that he would get down on his hands and knees with a towel and wash his disciples' feet. But see, greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by humility. It's not on your great achievements or your good looks or how much money you make or all those things. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by humility. And see, because he humbled himself even to the lowest parts of the earth, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name. You see, Jesus understood. If Jesus would have came acting all cocky and stuff, I wonder if the, Father, if the Holy Spirit would have been in him without measure. No, he's showing us an example of what a Christian life is supposed to be about. Humility. Love, faith, he operated also according to a plan. He had a vision for himself, like we do as a church. He, he prayed, sometimes all night. He was always getting along with the Father. He was, he was a human, and he was praying to his Father in heaven just like we do. Jesus was, and if he had to pray, how much more should we? He was showing us how the kingdom operates and kingdom principles. He was was showing us how to live a life within your banners. No, we have banners. I can't express to you how how I love these banners, these guardrails that God has given us that lead us down a path to, to his kingdom business. I can't imagine that Jesus would do anything outside of loving God, his people, and God's purposes. I can't imagine his countenance wouldn't be genuine and passionate, and his preaching wouldn't be relevant. I can't imagine that everyone wouldn't matter to him, or that he wasn't about people finding their pursuit. I can't imagine that he wouldn't be interested in discipleship, and everybody being a disciple, and everybody teaching somebody to follow the Lord. I couldn't imagine... I mean, his great commandment, I mean, the great commission is to go all over the world and preach the gospel, and there it is. That's ours, too. To become a name synonymous, to find the real Jesus all over the world. Where do, I feel like God laid this on the Passion Church, and he has already demonstrated all of these things for us. And if I saw something that didn't line up with the the example that Jesus gave for us, I would have to question it for a long, long time. But I think these are right down the middle of the road of God's passion for building the kingdom of God. What do you think? But that leads us to the sticky topic of willingness to suffer. I could almost hear that church mouth. Cricket. Cricket. Is he going to talk about my TV again? (laughs) No. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him, God made Jesus, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You're talking about suffering. I imagine those nails in his hands and feet hurt pretty bad. Cat of nine tails and the beatings and the things he suffered. The shame of being hung on that cross in between two thieves and treated like a common thief, the ruler of the universe among his own people. But to have the sins of all mankind laid upon him that he had never sinned. I, you ever feel bad for one of your sins? You, you know that sick feeling in your stomach, what sin does to a man or a woman? How you just like, oh, I can't believe I did that. And you just feel, oh my goodness, can you imagine all the sins of all the molesters and murderers? Well, let's just stop there. All mankind, all at once. He's willing. Suffering is a part of living in this sin-filled world. And Jesus suffered the most. I don't think anybody will get to heaven and say, well, you don't know what I went through, Jesus. No, actually, your sin was laid on me. Your exact sin. That thing you did. Oh, I, I experienced it. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Now, he's not asking us to suffer any more sin. Sin should be done away with in our life. But he is asking us to, hey, here's an idea. Get out the boat every now and then to help pull somebody back in the boat. Venture outside of your comfort zone for a moment here. And think about somebody else. How about let's grow this church? Let's see lives changed. How about invite somebody? I don't know. Do something. Don't just sit there. If you will suffer with him, you will also reign with him. This light affliction is but for a moment. But it works for us a far greater weight of glory in the life to come, you see. Whatever you suffer for Jesus' sake down here, whatever you do, even give a glass of cold water to a little kid. God's taking good records and good notes. And it's going to be so worth it. He's going to make it so worth it. Jesus also proved that he is who he says he is. I think that was a big thing because people that don't know Jesus, they want the proof. You know, what else? How do I know he's real? His love and deity became evident studying out his life, but it becomes indisputable in his resurrection and mastery over death. You see the miracles, and it's like, this guy, they're thinking, this guy, is, this, is, this is one of the prophets. This is somebody. <laughs> this, is some, this dude, he, he's the real deal, man. He's like, Elijah, come back. They're seeing these miracles. But then he tells them, you know, I'm going to go in the tomb, and a couple days later I'm going to get back up. And did it? This guy's God. Ain't no disputing that. 
Everybody who saw that was willing to lay down their lives for what they knew to be the truth after that. Nobody laid down their life for a lie. In Revelations 1.18, he told John the Revelator, he said, I'm the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and the grave. I am victorious. And he gave us clear instructions before leaving earth. And everybody knows the acronym for Bible, right? B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. He gave us these. He wrote it down for us, but he also told us. before. And the last thing he said before he left was that great commission. In Matthew 16, 15, it says it like this. Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. All the world. But then he said, please don't go alone. <laughs> I don't mean by yourself. I mean without the Holy Spirit. In Luke 24, 49, he says, stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from on heaven because you will mess this thing up without some guidance, without some power. You go preaching a powerful uh, gospel, you need the power and signs and miracles to follow it up. Boy, I'm praying for that here in this church. We see people healed, we see a lot of miracles, but I'm, I'm waiting for the big miracles. I'm wanting to see the signs and wonders that's going to draw folks. Be the dinner bell of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You believe with me that we're going to get out of the boat here. And God's going to do something great here in these end days. The Holy Spirit, as we know, would radically change mankind as we know it. And uh, we'll probably get to that next week. But it's been God's desire all along. And it was why Jesus started these three years of public ministry, so that he could prepare people. He could make it possible for people to be containers of God's Spirit. In John 17, he prayed to the Father in verse 21, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. Nobody can explain how the Father and the Son are, are one, but yet they're two. And the Holy Spirit's one with them, and it's three in one. I can't explain the Holy Trinity. And I can't explain how we're in him and he's in us. But God is bigger than our pea brains can understand. And that's, the, that's his plan was for the Holy Spirit to be in us and for us to be in him. In John 14, 12, he said, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I've done and even greater than these. In closing, in Luke 19, 10, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Just to sum it up. How many of you were lost at one point? He came to seek and save you. He came across the wind and the waves and walking on the water in the middle of the dark. It was 3 a.m. in the morning. They were miles out into the sea. And Jesus knew exactly where they were, and he came after them. And his main purpose was to restore a relationship with them, to shed some light in the midst of that darkness, that that valley of the shadow of death that we call earth, this little time that we've been given on earth while it's still sin-filled and sin-racked and, and the ravages of sin and the earth itself is groaning and creaking and praying for the sons of God to be revealed. And he came to shed some light in the midst of our darkness when the wind and the waves are coming over our boat. 
He came to show the way. For all they knew, the wind was blowing them in circles. He came to reveal the truth. He came to be our life. Not to just show us a better life, but to be our life, our eternal life, our Zoe life. He came to, that we might have life and life more abundantly. And what are the implications of this message? What should you take away from these three years as we examine them? Is Jesus just a, a ghost off in the distance in the haze to you? Or is he somebody that you got to have in the boat? And if he, if he bids you to go outside the boat, are you willing to go? Turn to Matthew 14. We're about to close. Verse 27. This is a story. A man named Jeff, poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. <clears throat> then one day, he was shooting at some food. And up come the ground, come a bubbling crude. I'm just kidding. Matthew 14, 27. Folks said, Jed, no. Move away from there. All right, but Jesus spoke to them at once. This is when he's coming across the water now. They're panicking. You got the scene in your mind, right? They think they're about to go under, and now they think they're, they're hallucinating. And he said, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. And boy, that had to make them feel good. And then Peter, he was so excited. Peter was always the first one to say something, whether it was right or wrong. He said, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Let me do it. Let me do it. In verse 29, Jesus said, yeah, come on, Peter. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over to the side of the boat, and he walked on the water towards Jesus. Some people say, who's the only person to ever walk on the water? Well, that's a trick question because there was two. Jesus did it and Peter did it. Verse 30 says, but when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and he began to sink. In other words, he got his eyes off of Jesus. And so you can't do anything apart from me, Jesus says. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. But then he had enough sense to say, save me, Lord, <laughs> on the way down. He shouted, and Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. Say immediately. Are you scared to step out on the water? Afraid to sink? See, he stepped out. He's not afraid. The Holy Spirit may have told him to do that, and he was willing to do it. Stepped out on the water, I'm telling you. Sometimes God tells us to do a little something, just as the test. What was it the other day? Something, something little. And sometimes I think, I'm going to do this, and then something gives me a check in my spirit, and I say, well, that's not really God. That's, that's not. But then if I get it again, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm learning to obey the voice of God. And so Jesus said, said come on out. 
and, and Peter jumped out of the boat. Can you imagine taking that first step on the water and, and not thinking you're just fixing to go straight under? But he's probably, Jesus! And then the big first wave smacked him in the face. He's like, ah, ah, save me, Lord. But immediately Jesus was right there. If you're afraid to step out, don't be afraid to fail. Do you not think that Jesus was more proud of Peter than he was all them other galoots sitting in the boat? You think he's going to let Peter drown? Is just an example to the rest of y'all. Y'all shouldn't get out of the boat. He's the one called him out of the boat. He was excited about Peter getting out of the boat. Don't you know that Jesus is going to be with you and failure is just a way to fall forward? It's a, it's a good practice of learning what not to do so that you can do better next time. It's part of winning. It's a vital part of succeeding in life is not being afraid to fail. Sound like a football coach. But Jesus did say, you have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? You was doing it, Peter. Don't let doubt creep in. When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. With Jesus in the boat, some of, I, I've talked to some people recently that they're, they're turmoil in their insides and, they, and their mind's going 100 miles an hour and they're, they can't stop it. And they're, they're trying to. But you've got to get Jesus in the boat. That's when the wind and the waves stop. You've got to keep Jesus in the boat. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. Talk me down, man. Get Jesus in the boat. And the disciples worshipped him. They went to that one thing. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. And like I said, in John 6, verse 21, it says, they were eager to let him in the boat, and immediately they arrived at their destination. That was another telling of the story in a different gospel. It says immediately they arrived at their destination. See, Jesus will get you home. He, it's his plan to get you to the other side. You'll get there a lot quicker, like immediately, <laughs> when you let Jesus in the boat. It won't be such a laborious journey. Jesus has the plan. Jesus is the only one that was ever that ever chose to be born into this mess. The rest of us, we didn't have a choice about being born. But Jesus did. He was the only one who chose to suffer what he suffered for you, to die on your cross like that, to take up his life again, that you might be born again. You know, when a lot of people didn't think you were worth killing, he became your substitute, your propitiation for your sins. He redeemed you when no one else thought that you were worth the price of the ticket. You were worth everything, everything to him. So why do we have such little faith? Why do we doubt? Look at those three years. You remember what he did and the implications of what all this means for mankind? I'll close by saying this. His life showed us the Father. 
The question I leave with you tonight is, will your life show us Jesus? Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.